This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Thank you for downloading or streaming this episode of Band Biographies. You can find more episodes at bandbiographies.com. That's B-A-N-N-E-D biographies.com. If you enjoy it, why not leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts? Apparently, it helps get the show up the charts so more people can see it, to download it, and then to leave further five-star reviews. Another way you can help is by telling as many friends as possible to give it a download. Please do reach out on Twitter, at BandBiogs, on Instagram, at BandBiographies, search on Facebook for BandBiographies, or by emailing BandBiographies at gmail.com. But most of all, enjoy. Marianne Joan Elliott Said was born on the 3rd of July 1957 in Bromley in Kent, and grew up in Brixton, London. Her mother, Joan Nora Elliott, was a Scottish-Irish legal secretary, and her father, Osman Mohammed Said, was a dock worker from Somalia. Somalis were often thought of as millionaires back home, because they sailed away to make a good living and would regularly send money back to their families. Later in life, Marianne would tell the press that her father was a dispossessed Somali aristocrat. However, Osman was far from that. He had stowed away on board a navy ship bound for Australia. He worked for his passage, but when the ship docked down under, he said he wanted to go to England instead. Eventually, he landed in Liverpool, and from there moved to the east end of London. Osman and Joan never married, and didn't even live together, which meant Joan and young Marianne were looked down upon by their suburban Bromley neighbours. This was a time in England when interracial relationships were extremely uncommon, and the resulting offspring of such unions were labelled as half-castes, or worse. So she moved them to London where she quickly became pregnant again with Marianne's half-brother David, and once more with a second daughter Margaret, who later changed her name to Hazel. But again, this Jamaican rent collector refused to marry her, leaving her a single mother of three mixed-race children to two men. Not a very common situation at all, and one that Marianne was uncomfortable with. Even when the family moved to Brixton, they continued to experience racism, not just from white people, but from black people as well. She described the house she grew up in in Brixton as a white-fronted grade 2 listed council house in a mixed part of Brixton, but I still felt the racial tension. Once I was hit over the head with a cricket bat, it was just that kind of era. Marianne, now known by the shorter name Marie, 
was badly behaved at school and prone to tantrums, but outside of school she was creative, always writing lyrics and poems, keeping a diary, and making bags and jewellery to sell out of scraps. I might be at a table and suddenly I'll catch a fleeting vision of her crystal seas. Eventually, during secondary school, she began bunking off regularly to shoplift and only went into school to catch up with her friends. She told Hugh Gullard of Viva La Rock years later that Brian May was her maths teacher. This turned out to be true. May, who would go on to rock superstardom as the guitarist in Queen, said the school was very challenging. You couldn't get the children to attend unless they were incredibly interested in what you were saying. I had an advantage because I was young and could speak to them in their own language. He added that he enjoyed his experience as a teacher, although one class gave him exceptional trouble. One of my most disastrous experiences was the time I tried to teach the second form rectangles, pentagons and hexangles, he remembered. I had this idea of letting them cut up coloured paper with scissors. The staff said, you're seriously going to take scissors into the second form. Half an hour into the lesson they were all attacking each other. Ears, feet and hands were getting cut and there was blood and paper everywhere. I remember thinking, I will never try this again. Marie said, we just happened to be in Bieber's in Kensington and he used to rehearse on the roof gardens. He used to come out and see us there because we'd skip games or something. He'd say, girls, what are you doing here? I used to ask him, are you married, sir? Sir, if you're married, why doesn't your wife iron your shirts? He used to come in with long hair and holes in his shoes and we used to tease him. He was very good, actually. He used to say, do you want to learn maths or not? I did run into him years later outside the Krishna temple. He asked me, are you married? Marie developed a fascination with Hollywood and imagined a life beyond Brixton and the social housing project the family lived in. At the age of 15, she got a job buying for a clothes shop and became very interested in fashion, pop music and pop culture. She also began going to theatre workshops at the Oval House Theatre, and it was here that she met Falcon Stewart. Stewart was a photographer and filmmaker who made a porn documentary called Penetration in 1974. His father had escaped from Croatia as the German Nazi party was gaining traction. He could see the writing on the wall even in the 1930s. His mother came from an aristocratic family. While he wasn't exactly rich, he was independently wealthy enough to own a house in Fulham, Chelsea, and pursue art and business ventures. He was 16 years older than Marie and saw potential in her. He invited her and a friend of hers back to his house to take headshots for their portfolios, and as well as beginning to coach Marie in the ways of theatre and film, the pair entered into a romantic relationship. Joan disapproved of the age difference as well as the class difference, but this was a man who came from a bohemian way of life with the money to do what he wanted, and best of all, unlike her mother, he encouraged Marie in her artistic endeavours. Marie found this irresistible. However, Joan gave her an ultimatum. Finish school or get a job. Marie attempted a couple of jobs but none held any interest for her, and she decided enough was enough. 
She needed to get away to really think about what she wanted to do with her life. At three months shy of 16 years old, she ran away from home to Hastings in Kent with just three pounds in her pocket. She chose Hastings because it was the only place outside of London she'd ever been on holidays. It was sunny when she got there, so she sat on the beach and paddled in the water, but the novelty soon wore off when it started to get dark. She spotted a couple of hippie-looking guys and decided to approach them. She said, All I really knew about hippies was that they were into love and peace. I reckon they must be alright. The two long-haired men offered her a place to crash, but it was far from the hippie idyll Marie had in mind. Their place was filthy, with a dirty mattress on the floor covered in a heap of foul-looking and smelling blankets. The floor was littered with cigarette ends and rubbish, including a good many near-empty milk bottles, the remains inside of which had gone sour. Boy, was I naive then, she said, a real 16-year-old virgin. I didn't understand what these two guys wanted from me. This period is likely to be the time where she changed the way she saw herself as a woman and began to reject presenting herself in a sexualised way. She began hitchhiking from one music festival to the next, staying at hippie crash pads. I didn't feel scared, she said in an interview with The Independent in 2008. At school, we'd read this book about a young Native American boy who, to become a man, had to go into the wilderness by himself. It was a challenge to see if I could survive. I lived on what we foraged in the forest. I did a lot of walking through the night. I walked in a stream in North Devon all the way to the sea. I sat on a rock with a guy who looked like he was from another planet, with long platinum blonde hair, blue robes, white eyebrows. It was as if I had touched him, he might not even be real. She turned 16 at one of the music festivals, and she began thinking about how she needed to stop drifting and wasting time. She moved to Bath, where she settled for a while, getting a job in a pub and involving herself in the local theatre scene. She even auditioned for RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, but failed to get in. The owner of the Bath Arts Lab was encouraging in a way Marie hadn't yet experienced from a man in her young life. She said, Jeff was wonderful to me. He was the first guy I'd ever met who seemed interested in me, not for what was in my knickers, but for what was in my head. He encouraged her to sing and learn to play the guitar, which she enjoyed, and got the chance to do some public performances, both singing and acting. Her confidence had grown, and some things had begun to make sense in her head. She moved back to London and in with Falcon Stewart, got a job in a typing pool where she copied up reams and reams of consumer data while she and Stewart planned her pop career. I dare Mrs Smith in 1975, at the age of 18, Marie recorded her first demo album, which was produced by Ted Bunting, but never released. The next year, she released her first single as Marie Elliott, called Silly Billy. Again, it was produced by Stewart and featured G.T. Moore on guitar and Bunting on saxophone. Moore was the leader of a white reggae band called G.T. Moore and the Reggae Guitars. He was chosen to play on the track by Bunting. Moore said that he was surprised by Marie. For her age, she had a lot of conviction and a lot of her ideas were quite thought through. 
I thought she had a lot of guts because back then there weren't many female singers and she was such a little girl trying to make it in London. I thought, such a sweet little thing, I hope she doesn't get too messed up. In her biography, Dayglow, Marie's daughter Celeste says Silly Billy is reggae pop, similar to Althea and Donna who she really liked. The single, which failed to chart, was released by GTO Records, which specialised in pop and disco acts like Billy Ocean, Polly Brown, The Dooleys, and had its biggest hit with Donna Summer's I Feel Love in 1977. Marie said, I never got paid for any of these sessions. As I was to find out later, my manager was pocketing all the cash. She quickly got bored of being a solo artist and decided she needed a band with people of her own age, rather than these older session musicians whom she had little in common with. Stuart took Marie to see the Sex Pistols play at one of their very early gigs for her 19th birthday. At the Pier Pavilion in Hastings, the Pistols, who were opening for a prog rock band called Budgie, tore through a set of thrashy, fast-paced covers of rock and roll songs, and this experience set the pair on a new course in life. In an unpublished memoir, Stuart wrote, The Sex Pistols had landed. They were pounding through their set in front of a small exclusive London audience on an away day excursion to the seaside. After three minutes, you knew they were going to make it. The new order was on its way. In a 2011 interview in The Guardian, Marie remembered, they had drain pipes, shortish hair and played covers. But they must have had something because I thought, I can do that. She immediately quit her typing job and set up a stall on the King's Road, not far from Vivian Westwood and Malcolm McLaren's shop, Too Fast To Live, Too Young To Die, where she would dismantle existing clothes, bags and jewellery and reassemble them into new items that she would sell. She named her stall X-Ray Specs, either after a pair of glasses that her aunt sent to her from America where such things existed, or from an advert in the back of a porno mag. Some of her customers included punk singer-songwriter Helen McCookery Book, journalist and future TV presenter Paula Yates, and George O'Dowd before he became Boy George. She also renamed herself Polly Styrene because of all the plastic clothing she was selling. I chose the name Polly Styrene because it's a lightweight disposable product. Yeah, it sounded alright because I thought it was a send-out of being a pop star. Like a little figure, not me, being polystyrene. Just plastic, disposable. That's what pop stars sort of meant to me, and so therefore I thought I might as well send it up. So I was looking for a name in that, and I thought I'd use the name something around today, you know, something plastic and synthetic. And I just looked in the other pages, and then I saw it. I don't know, got it really? So that's how the name of Polystyrene finally was born, from the yellow page <laughs> in her phone book? Yeah. Oh, wow. Hmm, <laughs> <laughs> get to us. <laughs> <laughs> 
She said I was christened. Wanted to have a total obsession about synthetic things in the modern world. And so therefore I dressed to, you know, fit. It went with the name and the songs and everything. I just wanted it to be interrelating. Even Vivian Westwood claimed that X-ray specs was the reason she started selling Angora sweaters at her shop. She said Polly was one of the most important people in punk, the only one telling the truth. Styring placed an advert in the music papers to form a band with like-minded people. The ad read that she was looking for young punks who want to stick it together. She quickly got an answer back from like-minded musicians Jack Stafford, a guitarist who decided to leave his band Puncture to join Styrene. Paul Dean joined as bassist, Rich T became the band's drummer, and the 15-year-old Susan Whitby joined as a saxophonist, which served to set them apart from most other punk bands at the time. Whitby remembers, This ad stood out, it was totally different to the other adverts. She had this lovely, beautiful smile on her face, and when I saw her, I just felt I'd always known her. It was definitely some previous life connection there. Styrene began writing more radical lyrics and music, exploring the dynamics of consumerism and techno-development, laced with teen irony, romance and rebellion. Like most of the early punk bands, most of the members took up stage names. As well as Polly Styrene, Stafford became Jack Airport, and Whitby became Laura Logic. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Band Biographies is proud to present the story of X-Ray Specs. X-Ray Specs took up residence in Falcon Stewart's house in Fulham, and he became their manager and photographer. As well as a saxophone, X-Ray Specs' other distinctive musical element was polystyrene's voice, which has been described as effervescently discordant and powerful enough to drill holes through sheet metal. Styrene became the group's public face and remains one of the most memorable front women in punk, wearing as she did thick braces on her teeth and a completely unique fashion sense. With that drainpipe physique and those gaunt, specky features of his, Elvis is hardly the figure of a male macho star. Then again, with those braces on her teeth, Polly Styrene is hardly Linda Ronstadt. Good, her band X-Ray Specs, one of the best around. Thanks for giving us a chance to talk to you. Can I ask you about the braces? Are they decorative or functional? Well, they're both really, because, you know, my two sort of, they used to stick out a bit and that, but, and I just thought, oh, I'll get a brace on, but, you know, make it sort of, get a good one that looks really good and outstanding. Yeah, outstanding. <laughs> but about the dress, I mean, you don't wear the normal sort of punk gear, the normal leather and plastic and the hinged together jeans, why not? Well, because, I mean, I just don't think that's what it's about. I mean, I think that's just sort of imitating other people, and I think it should be a form of, self-expression really and you know everybody should just wear what they want to wear and not feel sort of that they have to go to certain shops and buy certain things you know like seditioners and that. Where did you get yours from? Just anywhere really. Second hand shops? Yeah, well yeah. <laughs> she was described by Billboard magazine as the archetype for the modern day feminist punk because she rebelled against the archetypal female sex object of the 1970s, sported a gaudy day-glow wardrobe, and was of mixed race. She was one of the least conventional front persons in rock history, male or female. 
I don't think of myself as a girl singing rock and roll, I just think of myself as a person doing something, and that's it. And I suppose other people think of it like that, but I don't. Well, I don't know why they think of it like that, but it's just that they've got closed minds, that's all. In fact, she once stated in a 1978 NME interview that, I said that I wasn't a sex symbol, and if anybody tried to make me one, I'd shave my head tomorrow. She later did just this at Johnny Rotten's flat prior to a concert at Victoria Park. Rotten's longtime friend and bassist in his post-punk band, Public Image Limited, Jar Wobble, once described Styrene as a strange girl who often talked of hallucinating. She freaked John out. Despite this, Rotten, known more for his outspoken dislikes and disdain than for praise or admiration, said of X-Ray Specs in a retrospective punk documentary, they came out with a sound and an attitude and a whole energy. It was just not relating to anything around it. Superb. Styrene dressed the band in clothes from her own stall and was exacting in how they should look. Dean, the bassist, said, I hadn't realised at the time that fashion was such a big thing. I was more into the music, so I was a bit astounded that the photographers were taking pictures of me going into the club. Logic added, Polly was very adamant about everyone having short hair. I had long hair. She got some scissors out and she just cut my hair off. It didn't look very good. It was all over the place. It was horrible. Afterwards, I thought she did that deliberately to make me look really odd. Styrene and X-Ray Specs became one of the most talked about acts on the infant punk scene. The band began playing gigs straight away, playing twice at the Roxy during the punk club's 100-day existence, sharing bills with the likes of The Drones, Buzzcocks, Wire and Johnny Moped. Their first gig at the Roxy was only their second live appearance, and was also where Styrene witnessed a sales assistant from Seditionaries called Tracy cutting her wrists on the floor in the ladies' toilet. This would inspire some of the lyrics to the song Identity. The second gig at the Roxy was recorded, and the song Oh Bondage Up Yours was included on the influential Live at the Roxy WC2 album. Dean said that the beginning to the song that appears on that recording was a shambles. The drummer dropped his sticks right at the beginning of the song, so the drum intro didn't work. Jack's guitar strap broke, and it's just me on the bass going dung 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 dung, and it just sounds rubbish. However, the publicity from this led to a near-residency, twice-weekly gigs at the Man in the Moon pub on the King's Road on Sunday and Wednesday nights, promoted by Stuart. They headlined all of these gigs and gave support slot breaks to bands like Adam and the Ants, The Tourists and The Resillos, among others. They also began attracting interest from record labels. At this point, the length of drummer Rich T's hair became too much for Styrene and he was unceremoniously dropped and was replaced by Paul Herding, who left the band Shag Nasty, who had supported X-Ray Specs at one of the Man in the Moon gigs. Dean said, We got to know him quite well. He was a bit of a character. He was loud, larger than life. Because he was big and I was little. I was little Paul, and he was big Paul, so we called him BP. Virgin Records signed X-Ray Specs to record a studio version of Oh Bondage Up Yours. 
Concerned with issues of consumerism and disposability reflected in her name, Styrene wrote the song shortly after seeing the Sex Pistols for a second time. Some people think little girls should be seen and not heard, but I think... Oh, bondage! Up yours! One, two, three, four! The lyrics combine a depiction of contemporary capitalist materialism as a brand of servitude with a feminist rallying cry. Styrene later described it as a call for liberation. It was saying, bondage, forget it. I'm not going to be bound up by the laws of consumerism or bound by my own senses. It has that line in it, chain smoke, chain gang, I consume you all. You are tied to these activities for someone else's profit. Well, I mean, it's like the uh, two things, you know, I think most people, on one hand, people, they said they want to be kind of tied up and everything because it gives them an excuse not to have to think. But then on the other hand, they don't. So that's just, that just expresses the two things, really, because in the verses, it you know, says, I want that, and then in the choruses, it says, you know, up yours to all of that. I wrote it after I went to a Sex Pistols gig and I saw two girls uh, chained together and they're handcuffed together. So I wrote it after that. Because to me, you know, like, when they used to wear chains and dog collars and leaves and all of that, they used to sort of... It was like um, sort of drawing attention to the fact that they were in bondage as opposed to pretending that they weren't in bondage. Because a lot of people go around saying, oh, it's a free country, we're free and all of this and that which isn't really true because we're all kind of tied up really so to wear all that bondage gear and all of that just just drawing the fact it's not pretending that you're free or saying I'm, bond I'm bound up but so what anyway so I just don't mind showing it off to the world. Right? In his 1998 book Unknown Legends of Rock and Roll American writer and journalist Richie Unterberger described the single's raucous payoff after the solemnly spoken introduction. He wrote then the band kicks in with all the immediacy of a custard pie in the face. Fuzzy power chords and careening saxophone bleats fight it out with Styrene's half-chanted, half-sung vocals. A mixture of glee and rage that periodically trails off into caterwauling shrieks. Steve Huey described the song in 2002 as one of the most visceral moments in all of British punk. Though Al Spicer considered the studio single recording a fairly lacklustre version in a 2003 article. In Gillian G. Gar's analysis in her 2002 book She's a Rebel, The History of Women in Rock and Roll, the song eagerly steamrolled over the ideas of objectifying women by confronting the notion head-on. In the 1999 book Pretty in Punk, Girls' Gender Resistance in a Boy's Subculture, Lorraine LeBlanc describes Styrene's compositions and O Bondage Up Yours in particular as exemplifying the emphasis female punk artists placed on parody and paradox. As she describes, the first verse goes, Bind me, tie me, chain me to the wall, I want to be a slave to you all. Paradoxically, the chorus runs, O Bondage Up Yours, O Bondage Come On. As Styrene continues onto the second verse, she reveals that the song is not about sex, but about consumerism. Chain store, chain smoke, I consume you all. Chain gang, chain mail, I don't think at all. In this one utterance, Styrene transformed a seemingly masochistic plea into an indictment of consumer culture, denouncing the blind impulses of the mainstream shopper. In depicting herself as both an agent of and resistor to her submission, she created a parody of both positions, juxtaposing them powerfully against each other. 
In 2005, Logic gave her view of Styrene's vision. I think Marianne felt that everyone was in a type of bondage, restricted, crushed and alienated by modern materialistic society. The goal of our society is sense gratification. That is the only prize on offer. But one can never satisfy the senses. It is an impossible goal. Today, O Bondage Up Yours is regarded as X-Ray Specs' most enduring artefact and that it could be interpreted as a premonition of the Riot Girl movement 15 years later, although Styrene herself insists it was more intended as an anti-consumerist, anti-capitalist jingle, and was not exclusively feminist in nature. The single was well received by critics but banned by the BBC, and, though it failed to register on the charts, it caused the band to become subject of extensive media interest, and ended up selling around 35,000 copies upon its release in September in 1977. Kenny Everett was the only DJ to play the record, although only the first line, before Polly shouts the title of the song. Then he pulled the needle off the record and said, That's enough of that rubbish. Dean said it was good publicity, we all laughed when we heard about it. Polly, tell me a bit about what happened with your last single, Bondage Up Yours. I mean, it, does everyone assume that it must be sexual bondage then? Yeah, I think they probably do. Not everybody. I mean, I don't know. He just said he didn't understand it. I think a lot of people, they just don't understand it. And what they don't understand, they don't want to know. As what simple were you as talking that. about when you wrote the song? What, you, what was your idea behind that? I was just talking bondage? about all forms of bondage, you know, repression, everything else. And sexual bondage stems from that, so it's all part of the same thing, really. It all depends which way you interpret it. So it's much to do with social bondage as sexual bondage? Yeah, it's to do with it, all bondage. Even and it's bondage because it hasn't been played. That proves it as well. That is bondage in itself. Styrene was asked to come into Capital Radio to record a jingle-style advert for the song, as it wasn't being played, and in typical Polly Styrene style, she didn't stick to the script. They told me to say, I'm Polly, this is my new single, it should be yours. I said, I'm not saying that, and I walked out. What I did say was, this is a prefabricated icon speaking, don't buy it, it's dangerous. On the other hand, it's just a harmless piece of plastic from X-Ray Specs. Within a few weeks of the single's release, Logic left the band. The official line at the time was that she was struggling to keep up with her schoolwork as well as play in the band, but she was apparently sacked because Styrene was getting jealous of the attention Logic was getting. Logic said, I was quite shocked when I was asked to leave. I wasn't expecting it at all. Everything was going so well, there was good chemistry. I wasn't going out of my way to overstep her position. I was just the sax player after all. I had a couple of backing vocals, but as far as I was concerned, she was the upfront talent in the band. I was never trying to usurp her in any way. So yeah, quite disappointed. I was heartbroken. She went on to form a post-punk group called Essential Logic with ex-X-Ray Specs drummer Rich T, bassist Tim Wright, and guitarist Stuart Action in 1978. This band recorded one self-titled EP, seven singles, four of which charted in the UK indie chart between 1979 and 81, and one album called Beat Rhythm News, which reached number 11 on the UK indie chart upon its release in 1979. Logic was briefly a member of Red Crayola, appearing on two singles and the band's 1981 album Kangaroo. She also played on recordings by The Raincoats, The Stranglers and Swell Maps between 1978 and 1982, 
and later played with Boy George. During the recording of the second Essential Logic album, the group broke up, and Logic finished the recording as a solo album, Pedigree Charm, released in 1982 on the Rough Trade label. Dean said, after Laura left, the dynamic changed. We became a bit more vulnerable. I felt, if they've done this to Laura, and she was right there at the beginning, they can do it to anybody. Falcon perpetuated this kind of attitude to us. Well, if you don't like it, you can always go back to working in an advertising agency. He said to Jack, you can be a travel agent again, Jack, if you don't like what we're doing. You know, if this isn't good for you. That was the way he worked. Logic was replaced on saxophone first temporarily by John Glynn, who later joined Reckless Eric's band, and then permanently by Steve Rudy Thompson. I'll shut your mouth! X-Ray Specs played the Front Row Festival, a three-week event at the Hope and Anchor Islington in late November and early December 1977. This resulted in the band's inclusion alongside the likes of Wilco Johnson, 999, The Only Ones, The Saints, The Stranglers and XTC on a double album of recordings from the festival. In February 1978, they recorded the first of two sessions for John Peel at Radio 1. And earlier this evening, for half an hour, I went down to the Marquee Club in London uh, to see the undertones. Ridiculous, though, most of them. Actually, the first time I've seen them live, and uh, I really enjoyed it, I must admit. I mean, they lived up to my expectations, and that's as much as you can ask for, I think. And it's always nice when, you, you know, you just bump into people, and they say, oh, dear, you know, you're, you're going to do a programme tonight. And they say, yes, and they say, I have to leave after a while, you know. And they say, oh, yeah, well, we couldn't decide whether to come down here or to stay at home and listen to the programme. And that's, that's the way it ought to be, I think. Uh, I think perhaps they ought to go and see the live bands, because the programme... Programs, uh, you know, procure, as it were. And uh, the people I was talking to tonight said that they were very worried about missing the X-ray specs session and the first from it, germ-free adolescence. And later were invited to play a fortnight's residency at the legendary New York punk club CBGB's, which was a massive deal for the band. CBGB's owner, Hilly Crystal, said in the 2001 book Punk by Stephen Colgrave, Chris Sullivan and Simon Morgan, that his favourite British band was X-Ray Specs. They were wonderful. Their manager, Falcon, was one of the nicest people in the business. However, Dean remembers it differently. We were there for two weeks and we didn't have any money. Falcon would slide $10 bills under his hotel door for each of us. He wouldn't even open the door. Me, Rudy, Jack and BP would take the money and go down to the bar. An hour later, we'd go back to get some more. No, you're not having any more. He wouldn't let us have our own money. It was all control. Polly was in the room with him the whole time. She didn't do anything on her own. He controlled everything, kept her apart, whispered in her ear, you can go solo soon. There was always a them and us vibe with Polly and Falcon compared to the rest of the band. X-Ray Specs then signed with EMI to record its debut album, Germ-Free Adolescence. Throughout 1978, three singles were released from the album before the album itself came out.
In March, the day the world turned Dayglow was released, the song anticipated the anxieties of a world made of hidden cancerous chemical detritus. It's ominous but also catchy. In the lyrics, Styrene explores the toxicity of daily life in excruciating, relentless detail. Our homes, nylon curtains and perspex window panes, our infrastructure, the acrylic road, our transport, my polypropylene car, our fake food, a rubber bun, irradiated air, the x-rays were penetrating through the latex breeze. It culminates with an image of fake plastic trees years before Tom York sang of a cracked polystyrene man. Her lyrics were, synthetic fibre see-through leaves fell from the rayon trees. Styrene explained this song to Mojo magazine, saying, Most people thought the song was about tripping, but I was using images of artificiality. I grew up in a generation where all we had was brown paper bags in the local store, but gradually everything became more colourful. Dayglow symbolised the shift from natural to synthetic. We weren't buying cotton anymore, but brine nylon. It was a great time. People were discovering things with technology. Brian nylon you could wear to school and your mum didn't have to iron it. That's, well, I mean, in that, it sort of said it's um, to do with LSD, but it isn't, you see, because it's just that I just wanted to write something using all kind of plastic words and artificial things and make kind of a fantasy story around it. So it means something as well in, a, in an indirect way. It's like about the modern world, or maybe you could say it's futuristic. The single was the band's first chart, reaching number 23 on the UK singles chart. They also appeared on Top of the Pops to promote it, and despite the fairly standard look of the performance, they each had taken a tab of acid before going on stage to mime along with the backing track. Dean said, It was the worst thing I could ever have done. We went in there and it was all confusing and then we were standing waiting to play and there was no lead for my guitar and I'm saying no one can hear me. I remember being a bit panicked. Just before we went on, Peter Powell introduced David Soul, who had been in Starsky and Hutch and all the crowd went over to him. We just played the song and there weren't really many people in front of us, but we were tripping. It was ridiculous. I wouldn't do that again. On the 30th of April 1978, the band appeared at the Rock Against Racism gig at Victoria Park on the same bill as Steel Pulse, The Clash, The Ruts, Sham 69, Generation X and Tom Robinson Band. Penny Smith wrote in the NME on the 13th of May, The overwhelming impression that you get off polystyrene on stage is her sheer unassuming friendliness and high spirit. She doesn't seem to be performing so much as simply singing the songs and dancing around and grinning and having a good time. And it is this seeming absence of artifice that makes her such an excellent performer. But things weren't quite as they seemed. A traumatic experience prompted Styrene to shave her head just before this Rock Against Racism gig. Stuart was appalled and told her not to take her headscarf off during the performance, which of course she ignored. She said to The Guardian's Dave Simpson in 2011, I'd read that girls in concentration camps did that after being raped by the Nazis. You do it to be cleansed. But she wouldn't expand further on what she meant. Styrene's daughter, Celeste, said in the biography that she wrote about her mother, Dayglow, that the obvious parallel is Britney Spears, and I do remember that episode and thinking, wow, she's going through what mum went through. She suffers from bipolar as well, and Amy Winehouse did too. 
And when you look at these young girls, and mum as well, there's definitely a common thread. All three of them were damaged by fame, and at such a young age, and were not really prepared for it, and had people taking advantage of them. X-ray Specs was at the peak of their powers, but Styrene was nosediving. She claimed to see a luminous pink UFO after a gig in Doncaster, and that everything she touched crackled with electric shocks, which she said in The Independent in 2008, felt like a bad omen, like I was doing something wrong, misguiding people. It made me think I needed to be careful before I put ideas out into the world. Dean said she told him and the rest of the band about her experience at breakfast the next day, but they took no notice. They ate up and got in the car to travel to the next gig. He said, In the car she started taking her clothes off and saying, I want to go back, I want to be Marion, I want to go back, I don't want to go forward. We were in Nottingham and there was a Robin Hood service station, and I said, You can be made Marion if you like. Falcon said, For God's sake, Paul, don't indulge her. She was sat there naked. I was worried, but mainly for myself. I didn't really know what was happening, but I knew things weren't right. Styrene was misdiagnosed with schizophrenia and was sectioned in the Maudsley Psychiatric Hospital for several months. She also went to a health farm and, while there, got into a daily routine of getting up early, exercising, eating healthily and doing beauty courses. After this, she decided to have an image overhaul and began to live clean. The tour was cut short, May the 19th was the last time the band played live and Styrene went on holiday to Mauritius to recuperate. The band was then off the road for around six months. Stuart had to remortgage his house to pay the band's £200 a month wage bill. Styrene said to the Record Mirror in December 1978, I had to get away from it all. Mostly I just rested. It's not true I went bonkers. It just got too much. There were plenty of pressures on me. I went to New York. It really turned my head. All that attention. They treat you like you're really different. It got to me. I was worn out and doing drugs. I was smoking a lot. People were all around me telling me how wonderful I was. I didn't start to exactly believe it, but I started to get very insecure. I really missed playing, but in hindsight it got me off the treadmill. I'd been growing up in the public eye with all my teenage angst. In July, the second single from the forthcoming album, Identity, was released. It explores a fairly obvious topic and one that still resonates through society today. Race, identity and representation. Well, it's just about, you know, everybody's kind of looking f to identify with something, that's all really, that's all it's just saying, identity, it's a crisis, can't you see? In the lyrics, she presents these dilemmas of personhood as questions. <laughs> Identity also charted, peaking at number 24, and the band made a video for the song to be played on top of the Pops where they performed in a room full of mannequins, as well as up on the roof of the building and down by the Thames, pulling poses like the Monkees and the Beatles had in their videos just a decade or so before, though slightly less choreographed. In October, the third single, the title track of the forthcoming album, Germ-Free Adolescence, was released. Your your deodorant, no 
It's a punk reggae love song featuring lyrics such as I know you're antiseptic, your deodorant smells nice, I'd like to get to know you, you're deep frozen like the ice. In her futuristic tale of boy meets girl, purity reigns. He's a germ-free adolescent and cleanliness is her obsession. Cleans her teeth ten times a day, Styrene sings. Both deep frozen like the ice and the SR way, which is short for sodium ricinolate, are references from a Gibbs SR toothpaste advert, the very first television commercial broadcast in England in 1955. As her voice cracks out with each repeat of ten times a day, the desperation pierces through the song's swirling veneer. Germ-free Adolescence became X-Ray Specs' most successful single, reaching number 19. In November, the band's debut album was released. In a controversial move, the band used Logic's original sax parts and reproduced them note for note with Thompson or Ted Bunting, the man who'd produced Styrene's solo single before she formed X-Ray Specs. The NME's Charles Shaw Murray praised the album, saying it neatly avoids the weakness of previous Specs gigs and records, i.e. cacophony, ramshackle playing boosted by road drill volume while concentrating on the band's strengths, great lyrics, nifty tunes, energy and a winningly knowing innocence. Although he was disappointed by the lack of new material, stating that three A-sides and one B-side, I'm a poser, on an album makes for poor value. He especially singled out Plastic Bag as being by no means as excellently realised as it was on the original X-Ray Specs demo tapes of a year or so back. This illusion isn't elitism. I just wish you could have heard that version. Tim Lott of the Record Mirror claimed the album was for sophisticated headbangers and that it was bright music, glaring and kitsch as the pinks, greens and yellows that splashed the cover. Taste in tastelessness, anarchy in tune. What did you expect from X-Ray Specs? However, he critiqued some tracks, also noting that Plastic Bag went beyond the bounds of good kitsch. In Melody Maker, John Savage agreed with Charles Shah Murray that there was too much previously released material on it, noting that the album is basically the specs set from early days and the first demo with a fair sprinkling of new additions, Genetic Engineering, Warrior and Woolworths, Artificial and the title track. The album features an unforgivable proportion of material already released and well aired. However, he concluded that this doesn't detract from the album's playability. The sides are programmed symmetrically and sensibly. All the songs are built around catchy, deceptively simple riffs, often reminiscent of reggae in their jaunty lilt, and they're done full justice by the band and the production. Savage echoed Tim Lott's statement, finding that Plastic Bag was the one track that's actively annoying. The otherwise amusing song is burdened by a cumbersome arrangement, nostalgia lyrics and Polly at her most unlistenable. The NME ranked Germ Free Adolescence as the ninth best album of 1978. In his February 1979 Consumer Guide column in The Village Voice, 
American critic Robert Christgau complained that germ-free adolescents had not been released in the US, though it would eventually be released there in 1992, and praised Polystyrene's cheerfully moralistic nursery rhymes, the song's strong melodies, and the irresistible colour of the band's dubiously tuned one sax horn section. He also named the album one of the few import-only records from the 1970s he loved, yet had omitted from his Chris Gow's record guide, Rock Albums of the 70s, which was published in 1981. Since then, Germ-Free Adolescence has been widely lauded by the music press, with publications including Q, Rolling Stone, Record Collector, Spin, Uncut, Mojo, Pitchfork and Entertainment Weekly, all giving it glowing reviews and ratings. In 2011, Chris Gow wrote on NPR that Germ-Free Adolescence is one of British punk's strongest albums. In 1994, the Guinness Encyclopedia of Popular Music named Germ-Free Adolescence the eighth best punk album of all time. Seven years later, in May 2001, Spin Magazine ranked the album at number five on its 50 most essential punk records list. In March 2003, Mojo Magazine ranked the record at number 19 on its top 50 punk albums list. In an interview after being shortlisted for the 2014 Mercury Music Prize, British artist FKA Twigs named Germ Free Adolescence as her favourite album of all time. In 2020, Rolling Stone ranked the album at number 354 in their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new Factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. 
works. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, <laughs> oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. In late November 1978, X-Ray Specs reunited and embarked on their first and only full UK tour to promote the album. However, things were different on this tour. Styrene would regularly be late for gigs and missed sound checks. She would appear on stage after the rest of the band. She'd travel separately and was treated with a great deal of caution and care, which, considering how she'd been over the past year, is understandable but it still meant that not all was well in the X-Ray Specs camp. In January 1979, a TV documentary was shown on the BBC on its arena programme called Who Is Polly Cyrene? It followed her and the band as they promoted the album. The programme is a portrait of a young woman navigating the pop world while touching on the issues she's dealing with in her lyrics. This really underlined how far the band had come in such a short space of time from being banned by the BBC to being the subject of a documentary, but it also shows signs of Styrene struggling with the pressures of fame. There are certain times when you think, oh, you just want to hide, you know, you just don't want people to start looking at you or see you or anything like that, you just want to be on your own. I mean, it isn't normal for people to be surrounded with people telling them that they're great. That isn't a normal situation. Most people do not get that. It isn't normal to be up on stage and people jumping all over you and ripping your clothes off. That isn't a normal thing for anybody to take. And then you get people coming backstage as well, and then you get people coming to your house, and then you get people trying to break in, and then you just get people surrounding you all the time. And you just are never on your own, and that's just not normal. So therefore, you just say, go away, I don't want to see anybody. And because they expect you, they think you're a performer, and you're supposed to be this sort of thing that does all these, you know, entertains everybody, they think that that's, uh, then you must be having a nervous breakdown because you don't want to see anybody. But you're not, you're just being perfectly normal. Just saying, you know, I want to be by myself.
after the tour, the band went back into the studio to record a new single in February. The song, Highly Inflammable, was released in April and charted at just number 45, mainly due to the fact that by 1979 a lot of X-Ray Specs' contemporaries had surpassed them in musical ability and had changed their sound with the times in a more post-punk direction. A schism was forming within the band at this time as well. Styrene and Airport were writing more chilled out acoustic songs, whereas the rest of the band wanted to continue with fast, aggressive punk songs. The split was really starting to show. Dean remembers things coming to a head before a gig at Le Palace in Paris. Polly said, I'm going to use the acoustic guitar tonight, and BP said, if you bring that guitar on stage, Jack, I'm walking off. Don't play it, we are not doing that. These people want to hear X-Ray Specs. I remember him saying he would never play on stage with Jack or anyone else playing acoustic guitar. A couple of songs into the set, Styrene turned to Herding and said there's no drums on this one, and Airport brought out the acoustic guitar. Herding threw down his drumsticks and stormed off the stage. No one had ever heard the song that Styrene and Airport began playing, and the new direction wasn't one the Parisian crowd were expecting, and they weren't happy about it. They decided to make their frustration known, and started throwing fireworks at the stage and spitting at the band. Gigs at this time had been sporadic at best, but this simply confirmed Styrene's distaste for performing live, and she decided to quit the band. When you get an audience going hysterical or screaming or things like that, then that's not a sort of a normal thing to do. It's like an exaggerated peak period and a series of places in a sort of a certain period of time, and you just go from one lot of hysterical people to the next lot of hysterical people to the next lot of hysterical people to the next lot of hysterical people, which is just, you know, just too much. Every time you play, people go mad and jump all over the stage and things get wrecked and it's exciting, but it's, it's like a neurosis really. It's bound to have sort of some side effect on you. You just blank out, you just cut off. You just don't want to have to be this thing that they've come to see and say, no, I can't do it anymore. It's a novelty, people coming backstage all the time and you know, it's quite flattering. But then after a while you think, no, I, you, you just don't want to sort of see any new people. If they want to see me, they should see me on stage because they're fans, they're not really friends yet, but it's not really good for you because you just start to adopt more and more this stage personality for them. That's what they're expecting, so you just act it out. She and Stuart left them behind in Paris and went home immediately. When they got back to London, Stuart and the remaining members of the band auditioned singers to replace her, but none quite fit the bill, and X-Ray Specs split up. Dean and Thompson formed a short-lived band called Agent Orange with Anthony Tex Doherty, who would later become a founding member of Transition Vamp. Thompson then joined the members. Herding and Airport formed the new wave band Classics Nouveau with singer Sal Solo and bassist Mick Sweeney. However, Airport was replaced early on by Gary Stedman. 
and Classics Nouveau went on to release three albums and 11 singles, some of which charted between 1980 and 1983 before the band broke up in 1985. Airport and Dean released two singles as a new wave duo, Lost in Space in 1981, and Celebration in 1982. Airport later quit the music industry and worked for the BBC's corporate and public relations department under his real name, Jack Stafford. He died of cancer on the 13th of August 2004. Styrene recorded a solo album, Translucence, at Matrix Studios in London in 1980. The album, produced once again by Ted Bunting and featuring a range of session musicians including G.T. Moore, abandoned X-Ray Specs's loud guitar work for a quieter and more jazzy sound. Bunting said, Polly was absolutely determined that she wanted to make an album with no distortion. That was more accurate than it being entirely acoustic. I was living in Holland and I got the call. Would I come over to produce the album? They had put down some tracks. I listened and I got a feel and basically they were a bit of a mess. I said two things. First, the cheapest thing would be to start again. And secondly, I didn't think it was commercially viable, but was happy to work on it. If they wanted it commercially viable, I didn't think we should be doing this. Polly agreed and said, I know what you mean, but it's what I want to do. It was a weird process. In the end, I cleaned up the existing tracks and recorded four more. Eventually, there was nothing left of the old tracks. It was all replaced. EMI footed the bill. I'm sure they would have preferred another X-Ray Specs album. Translucence is more dreamy and introspective the direct opposite of X-Ray Specs and certainly most of the punk world that had either split into arty new wave bands or the more hardcore aggressive oi scene. Robert Criscow gave the album an A- rating in his consumer guide saying, Speed and crudity aside, the pleasures here recall germ-free adolescence, nursery rhyme melodicism and tongue-in-cheek versifying superimposed on an image of provocative, charming plasticity. And if you believe that means she's plastic, just what exactly is your beef? Are you a hippie or something? More recently, John Duggan wrote on All Music, For those who like rock, avoid this album. For those whose tastes are a little more eclectic and aren't afraid of sampling new delicacies, then this will definitely be a tasty little morsel. The most striking element of the record is Polly's gorgeous singing, supported by the supple, jazzy arrangements clearly not as aggressive or confrontational as her work with X-Ray Specs, but equally as rewarding. During the summer of 1980, Styrene met Adrian A.D. Bell. He was four years younger than her and from a working class background. He couldn't have been more different from Falcon Stewart. The pair fell in love at first sight and embarked on a whirlwind romance that saw them married and pregnant by the end of the year. Celine Bell Dos Santos was born in 1981, 
the same year as Translucence was released. The negative reviews and poor sales figures for Translucence got her dropped from EMI, and Stuart kicked the pair out of his house as he had other more successful acts under his management at the time, and now Styrene didn't have a record label and wasn't performing live, their business relationship was terminated, as well as their romantic one. This was unfortunate timing, as Belle didn't have a job and was planning on being part of Styrene's band so they could both make some money, but now that was an impossibility too. Pregnant and penniless, they were out on the street. A new royal family of wild nobility, we are the family! Falcon Stewart's career as a manager of bands stretched into the 1990s, starting with Adam and the Ants until 1981, Classics Nouveau, Amazulu and Trance Dance, as well as setting up the independent record label Awesome Records, whose releases were distributed through Rough Trade and its cartel. He died in 2002 at the age of 61. After staying in hotels for a while, Styrene and Belle were burning through what little cash they had between them, so they ended up staying at each other's mother's houses. Ever since seeing some Harry Krishnas on the King's Road some years ago, Styrene had been interested by these singing happy people in saffron robes. She wanted to know what about their religion made them so happy. She knew the words to the song that they were singing, because one of her favourite songs was My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, and it included the chant in its lyrics, Harry Krishna, Harry Rama. Styrene told John Clarkson of Penny Black Music that Krishna philosophy proved to be really in tune with what I'd seen. She meant the UFO. There were all these ancient scriptures called the Vedas. They talked about demigods coming to visit on celestial airwaves and interplanetary travel which could be achieved through yoga. There were Krishna books like Easy Journeys to Other Planets, so all of a sudden I wasn't mad. She joined the religion in 1982 and left for Vindravan in India, leaving behind her new husband and baby daughter. Really go with you. She had found a connection and a purpose and felt she needed to follow it. it there she started wearing saris, letting her hair grow long, pierced her nose and took on the name Maharani Devi, which translates into English as Queen. Ex-X-Ray Specs bandmate Laura Logic, now known as Sharma, met Maharani in 1983 in the Hare Krishna's Soho Street Temple, after Maharani had moved back to London from India. They spent some time in Bhaktivedanta Manor, a mansion donated to the Hare Krishnas by George Harrison. Both had been taking a lot of drugs, and the move into the religion turned both their lives around. Logic said, she'd changed a lot, we were happy, I liked her so much as a person and I never wanted to sever my relationship with her. We were really close for about eight months. We had so many fun times together. So I was happy, I was really happy. But it was a bit of a shock. Celeste said that she now thinks that her mum had been suckered in by the religion. She says that although it's better now, 
it was a cult in the 1980s and that her mum was brainwashed. She said, There are some philosophies that would have resonated with mum, like the vegetarianism and the ideas about karma and yoga, which are quite benign. And if you're famous, you get all this special treatment and they big up your ego. Then at the next stage, they try to erode your sense of identity, hence the changing of the name, a clear rejection of your former identity. Though Celeste was too young to be initiated, she was also given a Hare Krishna name, Radha Shakti, which translates to energy of Radha. At this point in 1985, Maharani had taken Celeste from Bell to raise her daughter with a set of standards in a community, rather than a council house the couple had just moved into, in which she didn't feel at all at home. That was the end of their brief marriage. Around this time, Logic entered into an arranged marriage at the Krishna temple and has been married to the same man ever since. They have two children. Maharani later got engaged while with the Hare Krishnas and she asked Belle, who had attempted sometimes in vain, to see her and Celeste every week for a divorce. He agreed, but the judge refused Maharani's request that he give up contact with Celeste altogether. They could see something was wrong. Styrene later told Caroline Scott of the Sunday Times that there was one instance where Boy George, Marilyn and Gavin Rossdale turned up at the temple one day to try to break her out, but she said she was happy there at the time. But in reality, she was still suffering from mental breakdowns and other members of the community were starting to gossip about her. In 1986, she released the EP Gods and Goddesses under the name Polystyrene on the awesome record label owned by Falcon Stewart. She'd done some initial recording in the temple, as it had its own studio. Styrene and Logic had both been encouraged by the temple to perform at Glastonbury on the Harry Krishna's own stage. The EP has quite a slick 80s synthesizer sound, but with lyrics influenced by Krishna philosophy. Styrene said of the album, The song Paramatma is about the super soul within everyone. It's spiritual pop, really, but it's not sort of hallelujah, it's more philosophical. The Krishna movement is a preaching movement. It's about enlightening other people. The album was also produced by Stuart, who she hadn't quite cut all ties with somehow, and featured arrangements from ex-X-Ray Specs guitarist Jack Airport. After four years of living in the temple and now engaged, Styrene's mental health really took a turn for the worse, and eight-year-old Celeste left to live with her grandmother Joan in 1989. To get her back, Styrene had to rejoin the society which she had rejected. She eventually left her fiancé and moved into a flat in Dulwich in 1991. Styrene lost her custody battle case to her own mother, so Joan became the legal guardian of Celeste, which was also what Celeste wanted, which put a strain on their relationship. Later that year, X-Ray Specs reformed for a surprise sell-out gig at the Brixton Academy, 
where Styrene appeared in a blue foam dress with an army helmet to her regret. Her band that night included the son of British actress Hayley Mills, whom she'd met while in the Harry Krishnas. Crispian Mills would go on to form and front the band Cooler Shaker a few years later. This was actually my first uh, professional job as a, as a gun for hire playing guitar. Um, when I was 19 I got um, polystyrene, the lead singer of X-Ray Specs, um, gave me a job basically, really? gave me a gig and she she's a bit of an elusive um, yeah. a character and she was decided to do a one-off gig at Brixton Academy and needed a band and needed a guitarist and she, she fancied a sort of a bowl-headed um, wow. teenager play guitar so I got the gig and um, and I got to do all those all those classic X-ray spec songs plus a few of her and new ones which were raised a few eyebrows she's a real a real character and Is they, she? they were yeah and I mean she was really she was really um, the identity of the band yeah and, and the main writer polystyrene but they were a great band um, she, she had this identity of uh, a, a, it was real pop art punk you know yeah it and, was and she had um, a fantastic lyrical style you know she was obsessed with you know people trying to find themselves in a, in a plastic world she had a real sense of humor and um yeah i mean a, a real heart as well mm. that her, she she took me under her wing oh um, she was uh, the year she's born in the year of the rooster so oh. she is a bit of a mother hen as well and she does have oh. big feathery wings she always will go against the grain as well and um we, you know, it was a big sort of uh, punk, punk revival gig at Brixton Academy, and um, uh, it was uh, quite, quite a, quite a night. To so remember. was it, was it fun? Was it a fun gig? Yeah, it was incredible. And she did this remarkable thing. She you know, went on with the, you know, the tin, tin helmet, uh, you know, right. and, the, and the, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, aviation goggles, you know, and the whole, the whole, this whole mad outfit. Yeah. And then uh, halfway through, she left the stage and. Um, left me to sort of fend for myself in front of all these spitting some yeah. pretty crusty punks there yeah. um, and uh, she decided to go for a wardrobe change uh, but she hadn't actually told the band <laughs> and um, she came on about 10 minutes later 10 minutes in front of 5,000 punks is quite a long time if you haven't rehearsed it. yes I imagine you do and she came back on sort of doing Stevie Nicks in this white sort of goddess outfit which wasn't very punk it was a bit more Rhiannon <laughs> And uh, so it, was, it shocked us all, shocked the audience. But it, she ended with uh, Joan for adolescence and brought the house down. Styrene said in The Independent in 2008 that I look like the world's biggest hot water bottle, a giant oblong with protruding limbs. It had little planets all over and was meant to replicate something I wore at the Roxy in 1978, but it didn't work. Dean and Airport didn't attend, but Logic was there. She was nonplussed. She said, it was alright, she didn't feel very at home on stage, she just seemed like she was going through the motions. However, the show was a success, though Styrene wasn't quite in the right mental state to reform the group full-time just yet. In the same year, Styrene was diagnosed with bipolar, which she believes she suffered from throughout her life. It was around this time that she employed an entertainment lawyer who worked hard to unpick all of the damage that Falcon Stewart had done in terms of song rights. It turned out that during one of her stays in a psychiatric hospital, he had got her to sign away her publishing rights. Styrene said to John Clarkson in Penny Black Music, 
I kept thinking, it's okay, I can trust him, and he would just say, sign this, and I would. I didn't know what I was doing. Celeste said in Dayglow, her biography of her mother, for years she had struggled financially and money worries had played a great part in her mental health issues. The money that began to trickle in helped her to feel in control of her destiny again, and she began to think about re-entering the music business. Celeste adds, her and Falcon had a complex relationship. I think he justified things to himself. It wasn't that he was ripping mum off. He did think it was in her best interests in a way. But I don't think he had any qualms about benefiting himself. Falcon was a businessman, but that doesn't mean he didn't care for my mum deeply, because he did. It also must have been beyond stressful dealing with mum at times, and I guess he felt he deserved a lot for his role in trying to keep it all together. I suppose the fact they were once lovers as well as artistic collaborators further complicated matters. Johnny's got an addiction! X-Ray Specs reformed permanently in 1995 with a lineup of Styrene, Dean and Logic, who were joined by guitarist Red Spectre, which seems to be an assumed name for Crispian Mills, as that's who Celeste, Logic and Dean say was in the band, and drummer Pauli Oet to record and release a new album, Conscious Consumer. Dean says about being recruited by Styrene, I'd just had a son and she had heard and was asking about the baby. And then she said she wanted to do some more music. She was looking for musicians and they had to be vegetarian, non-smokers, non-drinkers as well. I said, but hang on a minute, I do drink. She said, oh, it doesn't matter with you, but all the other ones should be vegetarian. The album was recorded in two studios in London and produced by Styrene. It was released on the 28th of September on Receiver Records. Logic said, It was nice, I loved the songs, very different. The spirit was the same, but the style was different because of Crispian's influence. Sean O'Neill wrote for the AV Club that the album revived the group's original anti-consumerist stance, but tempered it with Styrene's newfound serenity on songs like Prayer for Peace. Richie Unterberger of AllMusic adds, This unexpected comeback effort demonstrates that her worldview hasn't changed all that much since the punk era, though the music, much of which was written over ten years before this was recorded, has mellowed somewhat. She's still examining the crassness of consumer culture on cuts like Cigarettes and Junk Food Junkie, but her experiences as an adult are reflected in the more subdued cuts like India and Prayer for Peace. Styrene is in just as good a voice as in the old days, though the brash exuberance has been toned down. It might not be all that old-school punk fans would wish for, but it's worth checking out, and the languid Crystal Clear may be the catchiest tune she's ever laid down. Although touted as the first in a trilogy, Conscious Consumer was not a commercial success. Dean said, There were some really good songs, but we did do it too quickly. It was really underproduced. There was no overriding concept of sound about it. It was all done very quickly and nothing happened with it. Logic agreed. I don't understand why it didn't get pushed more. There's some hit singles on there like Cigarettes and Junk Food Junkie. They're brilliant, classic pop songs. I don't know why it didn't go further. Seems a shame, 
she put so much into it. Then touring and promotional work was brought to an abrupt end when Styrene was hit by a fire engine in central London, suffering a fractured pelvis. The following year, X-Ray Specs played at the 20th anniversary of Punk Festival in Blackpool, but Styrene decided to withdraw at the last minute, as she and Logic had fallen out again. A replacement singer named Polly Filler was recruited for this gig, and the band immediately broke up again. For the remainder of the 1990s, Styrene was in and out of hospital with mental health issues, and was cut off from her mother and daughter until she started to take her medicine and take some semblance of control of her own life without relying on others. Celeste said, she said she preferred the highs and lows of her illness to the numbness of being on medication, which I can understand, but for her family, I didn't care if she felt numb. It was preferable to her being like a complete lunatic. In her depressive stages, Styrene would stay in bed all day, but in the manic stages of her illness, she would stop sleeping and eating, and after a few days of this, she would start hallucinating, hearing voices, and began believing people were out to kill her or Celeste. Logic resumed her band Essential Logic in 2001 with a new lineup including ex-members of the Scar group Bad Manners and ex-Blondie guitarist Gary Valentine. This lineup released a self-titled four-track EP. A year later, a further four tracks from a recording session in 1998 were made available from the website Vitamin Inc. In 2003, the Kill Rockstars label reissued most of the early Essential Logic material, alongside new recordings by Logic on an album called Fanfare in the Garden. In 2004, Polly Styrene released a New Age solo album called Flower Aeroplane. She said in an interview with Penny Black Music, a flower aeroplane is like a celestial airplane. If you've been successful in serving Krishna and your guru, then at the time of your death you wait for this beautiful flower aeroplane and you get taken back to the spiritual world. At this time, Styrene was diagnosed with a cyst on her ovaries, but she didn't want it removed because she didn't want to have a hysterectomy. She was still convinced she wanted more children, despite being close to 50. Celeste said, I'm pretty convinced that if she'd had the cyst removed and had the hysterectomy, she would have been okay. But one of her downfalls was putting way too much faith in alternative medicine and being way too sceptical of Western medicine. Joan eventually made Celeste move back with Styrene because she couldn't deal with a teenager at her age. She then moved down to Hastings. Polly and Celeste fought like cat and dog, and eventually moved down to Hastings as well to be near to Joan, and Celeste went to university. Styrene got a detached Victorian house that she decorated perfectly, and it seemed to give her more peace than living in a cramped London flat with noisy neighbours and a stroppy teenager. In 2007, Styrene was invited to the Concrete Jungle Festival in Camber Sands by her friend, journalist and member of the band's Goldblade and the members, John Robb. At the festival, she and the gathering's organiser, Simmond Laws, arranged a 30-year celebration of germ-free adolescence. They decided to hold a live show, 
her first in 17 years, playing germ-free adolescence in its entirety, with the exception of Plastic Bag, at the Camden Roundhouse, which was a sellout event on the 6th of September 2008. She said to The Independent that I was nervous, Paul, the original bass player, was shaking, the crowd was singing and dancing in the balconies. In truth, Dean was more worried that Styrene would pull out at the last minute again, as she was worried about going out in front of so many people not looking the same way she had 30 years ago. Drummer Sid Truelove said, 30 minutes before we were meant to be on stage, she said, I'm just popping back to the hotel. Me and Paul were like, oh dear. Paul said last time she did that, she just didn't turn up again. Luckily she did, but she was medicated, which put her slightly behind the beat as the band started, so they all had to slow down a touch for her. Nevertheless, True Love said, I've got the most amazing footage because I set up recording equipment and prayed it would work. And I've got footage of the crowd singing to Polly. It's so amazing, the volume of people singing back. She could have not sung for a minute and the audience would have sung it. Dean said, It was a wonderful night because it was a chance for my children to see X-ray specs. My son was about 16 at the time and he crowd surfed. And my daughter was there with my wife. The response was overwhelmingly positive. We got brilliant reviews, everyone enjoyed it. The crowd went loopy and jumped up and down and sang along. Really sang along. That was, to me, very noticeable. In the early days, people just watched us. Nowadays, people do sing along to their favourite bands. It's a kind of communal thing, isn't it? A live album and DVD of this event, Live at the Roundhouse London 2008, was released in November 2009 on the Year Zero label by Future Noise Music. There were plenty of promoters who offered further gigs, but Styrene was adamant that it was the last X-Ray Specs gig. She'd organised everything herself, right down to hiring security for the first time without the help of a manager. And she'd made a lot of money. Something seemed to click for her in that moment, according to Celeste. She was fragile after the show. It made her realise that if she wanted to do anything and have a shot at really having a career, she had to take medication and look after her mental health. That also meant avoiding situations that would trigger episodes, like romantic liaisons, and avoiding people that were going to be a bad influence. And also the Krishna thing. She finally realised that she'd maybe been a bit fanatical. On the 28th of April 2008, Polly Styrene gave a performance of Oh Bondage Up Yours in front of more than 10,000 people at the Love Music Hate Racism free concert in Victoria Park, East London, with guest musicians Drew McConnell of Baby Shambles and Helsinki, and Flash David Wright playing saxophone. That same year, she duetted with John Robb on a remix of Goldblade's City of Christmas Ghosts. In March 2009, Styrene joined other members of PRS for Music in criticising Google for allegedly not paying a fair share of royalties to musicians. 
Following this, Google removed millions of videos from YouTube because of the dispute. Over the previous couple of years, Styrene had got to know Shirin Kuya, the label manager of Future Noise Music that had put out the live album of the Roundhouse gig. Styrene had between 15 and 20 songs she'd been writing, so Kuya encouraged her to record a new studio album. The album, entitled Generation Indigo, was produced by Martin Glover, also known as Youth, the bassist in Killing Joke. Youth remembers, we got on immediately, she sang me some of the ideas and we just went in very quick. There was a tiny budget, but I was very happy to just give it a good push and work with her. I thought she was a legend. Styrene released a free download of Black Christmas in November 2011. Inspired by a Los Angeles killing spree of a man dressed as Santa Claus, Black Christmas was written in collaboration with her daughter Celeste. While working on Generation Indigo, she had noticed a slight pain in her back. She went to her GP in the south coastal town of St. Leonard's on the Sea and was told to take painkillers. Eventually, after months of growing agony and being bounced between her GP's office and A&E, she demanded an MRI scan. The diagnosis sent her reeling. Breast cancer had spread to her spine and lungs. Then. A little fall fractured her spine in two places. She promoted the ironically upbeat Generation Indigo album from a hospice bed. Virtual Boyfriend, a song about internet dating, was released as the first single from Generation Indigo on the 21st of March 2011. She said she was thinking about the fact that everything is done now with computers and devices. There's so much technology. It was just about the idea that a young girl could have a virtual boyfriend who she never actually sees or touches, and then can just dump him by pressing delete. Well, I just thought it was funny because everybody was having all these relationships online and it's great, but you never see each other. Well, you probably do sometimes, but I just thought, why not write a love song about that? That you're not meeting, uh, but you're actually... And then at the end it goes, press delete to end. You know, I just dumped them on my... by text or by... on Facebook or, you know, MySpace. I just thought it was fun to have a song called Virtual Boyfriend where you... Just complaining that you never see each other, looking to the future and not looking back, which was like more the upside of it. And but the virtual boyfriend was, oh well, that was just very disposable. Press delete to end. I don't know. It just struck me as being very now. The album was released a week later on the 28th. It received critical acclaim, including a 10 out of 10 score in Art Rocker magazine, an 8 out of 10 in the Daily Telegraph, and it was chosen as album of the day on BBC Six Music. Youth said, We were keeping a kind of edgy post-punk aesthetic, but I wanted to make a contemporary record as well, so we were listening to lots of contemporary dancehall, MIA, all sorts of modern artists, hip-hop, grime, bringing sort of dubstepy artists in to do some beats. Viv Albertine from The Slits was a guest on the album too, playing guitar on Ghoulish. I think it still stands up, I think it sounds great. 
The Slits' Tessa Pollitt was also asked to play bass on the album, but she declined because she didn't think she was good enough. She said, I think Polly was a bit disappointed. I did like it. I'm just kind of limited in how I play, and I didn't want to let her down. I felt she needed someone really solid on that album. Generation Indigo was described by The Independent as a hugely enjoyable electro-pop album, which sees the X-Ray Specs singer reprising the eye for cutting social observation she first expressed on classics such as Germ-Free Adolescence. It's proof, if we needed any, that if we lose Polly, we'll be losing one of the greats. John Robb said on Louder Than War, What a comeback. Polly Styrene has released a defining album. Generation Indigo is neither the raucous, sax-driven punk rock of her youth or the spiritual trip-outs of her occasional solo releases. It's an album that sees her idiosyncratic viewpoints stretched over several different styles. The album was released in the US on the 24th of April, and the next day Polystyrene died of metastatic breast cancer at the age of 53. The hospice in which she died was in St Leonard's, just over a mile from Hastings Pier, where her journey into punk began at that Sex Pistols gig in 1977. Tessa Pollitt said, It was such a shock. The horrible thing is, it was so similar to Ari, Ari Up, the singer of The Slits. These are two of the top female punk singers who both died of the same thing within a year. I just could not make sense of it. Celeste said, I don't think she ever expected to live very long. She always said she didn't want to get old. She would often point at my dear Nan and say, I don't want to get like that. My nan said, as hard as it was losing a daughter, there was also a sense of relief, because nan always worried what mum would do when she died. The single Ghoulish, a song that looks beyond the surface of subcultures and the fear of people dressing beyond the norm, was posthumously released just after her death. That was about Michael Jackson, which is when he was dying, and it was, it was all that. And he had all these pictures of him with the, the nose that had fallen off, and, and the white face, and the ghoulishness of it. Um, but then I just wanted to say, see through that, you know. See through that he was probably quite a nice guy. He seemed that I never met him, but soft-spoken, gentle, and I was just describing him, and it was just... That's the way I, it just, I, it was all over the media and it just came and I, I just thought I'd write that song. It just inspired me to write that song. But it could be about any goth guy almost, you know, that wears makeup. But it, it, Michael Jackson was the inspiration. Writing in Rolling Stone, John Dolan said, This April, Styrene died of cancer after an intermittent post-Specs career. She left behind this life force of a new album, recorded before learning she had the disease full of sharp, buoyant reggae and synth rock that's true to her personal is political vision. She fights techno-alienation on the hilarious virtual boyfriend, and I love your sneakers, big ups fashion that doesn't harm animals. Her searing voice had mellowed, but her passion burns bright. I don't believe we're doomed, she sings on the green energy plea White Gold, a seize the day dare that's achingly poignant.
During their first incarnation between 1976 and 1979, X-Ray Specs were deliberate underachievers, releasing only five singles and one album. Nevertheless, O oh Bondage Up Yours is now acknowledged as a classic punk rock single, and Germ-Free Adolescence is widely acclaimed as a classic album of the punk rock genre, though Styrene herself wanted to be remembered for something more spiritual. These songs are not only riveting examples of high-energy punk, but contain provocative, thoughtful lyrics, berating the urban synthetic fashions of the 70s and urging individual expression. X-Ray Specs was one of the most inventive, original and genuinely exciting groups to emerge during the punk era, and fronted by Polly Styrene, the first woman of colour in the UK to front a successful rock band who was without question one of punk's most influential, colourful and greatest artists, whose effect is still felt on bands today, as well as the Riot Girl and Afropunk movements. She introduced the world to a new sound of rebellion, using her unconventional voice to sing about identity, consumerism, postmodernism, and everything she saw unfolding in late 1970s Britain with a rare prescience. Youth said, Polly's legacy is immense. I think dealing with the whole machine of marketing, the whole approval thing of social media today is totally relevant to what Polly's message was, which is, don't be afraid, don't bend down and be subservient or in bondage to anyone else's ideas. Be yourself, and make your own journey, and discover who you really want to be. Obviously it goes into gender politics, and also race, but aside from that, just on the strength of the words and what she has to say, super powerful. I can think of very few artists today that can come close to that kind of intensity of expression. I mean, they try, but she really was plugged into the mains, and she had a very clear way of expressing a simple truth. Vivian Westwood said, I didn't realise her songs had so much content in them. I just knew there were some great lines, but she was quite near to where we are now, understanding things. How soon is it going to be before artificial intelligence becomes more human than human beings? Are we going to get killed by climate change? Or are we going to get killed by the fact that we're not needed anymore and there'll only be machines? I'm a cliche in the sense that I've got two feet, two hands, ten fingers, <laughs> two eyes, hair, <laughs> brain. <laughs> well, if that counts or not in cliches, I'm not sure. <laughs> and a body and two legs, so yeah, I'm cliche. <laughs> X-Ray Specs and Polystyrene especially were a one-off, and she was certainly not a cliche. for listening to this episode of Band Biographies. If you enjoyed it, please don't forget to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever service you use to listen to your podcasts. Please do reach out on Twitter at BandBiogs, Instagram at Band Biographies, search on Facebook for Band Biographies or by emailing bandbiographies at gmail.com. See you next time.
Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's off-track betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. 